Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey, what's up, boys and girls? It's Scott Groves with the On The Edge Podcast. I'm here with my long-term uh, acquaintance, but first-time friend, uh, Justin Skinner. We uh, we kind of run in the same business circles. We have a lot of mutual friends. We're in a couple Facebook groups together. We're in a men's kind of professional development group together called Go Abundance, which I've referenced often on this show. Uh, Justin's a family man. Him and his brother, a few years back, broke out and started their own division of a commercial real estate agency, as has been kind of been a thre- uh, thread these last few weeks, uh, owns several properties, uh, manages some medium-term Airbnbs. Uh, although we're recording this at the beginning of 2022, by the time you see it, uh, his book drops next week on April 5th called uh, Professional Failure, which I'm interested to see what that's about because that's a pretty aggressive title. So, uh, Justin, welcome. And what did I miss in the 30-second Reader's Digest uh, biography of Justin Skinner? Yeah, no, thanks for having me. That was perfect. I don't think you missed anything. All right, cool. And where are you coming from? Uh, where are you coming to us from right now? Yeah, Springfield, Missouri. We're actually, I'm recording this in one of our uh, our short-term rentals, our Airbnbs. We we actually had Starlink at our house and I, uh, I jacked up, which speaking of failure, I didn't put the satellite in the right place. And so we lost signal. So I've got to fix that. So I'm not home in my office. So can you explain Starlink? All I know is Elon Musk owns it and I know nothing else about it, but I like, I put in my reservation for it. I'm like, I don't even know what it does, but if Elon Musk has a finger in it, I want it. So I have a reservation for Starlink and they're like, we'll be coming to you in six months, but I really have no idea what it is. Yeah. To be completely honest, I probably don't know as much as I should. I just know it's, uh, it's, it's internet for, uh, rural, I don't know, communities. Like obviously if you're in the city, you don't necessarily need it because there's broadband everywhere, but, uh, you know, we live in like country and we don't have fiber. We don't have like companies won't come out there just cause we're far enough out. So Starlink gives us, uh, access to high-speed internet. Nice. If you put the satellite in the right direction, if you put it in the right direction. So I learned that literally like a leaf will deflect this. I'm like, I don't understand it because we have cell phones and we have all these little, you know, tiny pods that you can like throw in a basket, like under a counter and it still works. Right. But yet Elon, he's, he's brilliant obviously, but he can't develop something that like isn't detoured by a leaf. doesn't make sense to me, but whatever. So I've got a buddy. Um, uh, he actually is my tutor for this show because I'm not formally educated. I'm like, I'll say something super ridiculous. And, and so I got a tutor for the show before we started to talk about politics and economics and whatnot. He's getting his PhD from Brown. And I'm like, oh, what is your PhD in? As if I thought there was any chance I would know what he's talking about. And he's like, well, it's about low orbit rocket science, international politics. And I'm like, what? He's like, basically, I want to be the first person to uh, publish PhD studies on international conflict in low orbit space so that when the new space force, like the new part of the defense organization wants to know like, well, should we shoot down China satellite or should Elon Musk like take over the government satellites? Like I want to be a consultant for that. And I'm like, that is very specific. He's like, well, I was in the military. I liked thermo geo space rocket stuff. I words I didn't even understand. Yeah. And I'm like, bro, you are way too smart to be my tutor. He's like, don't worry, I can dumb it down. Yeah, <laughs> so he's like, probably gonna be blown up Starlink. He's gonna be blown up my signal at some point if he's yeah. having to shoot it down. For yeah. sure, for sure. Maybe he can fix this problem with the leaves. So yeah, uh, maybe. All right. So hey, I'm interested, and I hate to go straight into like politics and COVID because that's all everybody's talking about. But all of my friends, you know, L.A., Vegas. My, my 19-year-old son lives in New York. Everybody I know or that I talk to at a, at, a, at a high, close, deep level, they all live like city life, you know, right on top of each other, 
Yeah. 24-7 fear porn from CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. Like, I get screamed at if I accidentally walk into a Starbucks without a mask. What's the what's the converse of that? Like, what's, what's the opposite of that living in rural Missouri? Is, is it different? Is everybody still as fearful? Like, what has the last couple of years been like for you? Yeah, um, there's still fear here for sure. We just don't have, maybe we're more towards Florida where they're just pretty open and people aren't as uh, worried about it. Um, but for the most part, it's been pretty open here. I know we had a little mask mandate. And to be honest, I don't think a ton of people followed it. Um, you could get yelled at eventually. I mean, I got ushered out of a couple of places here in Springfield. So it happened. Um, but I, it was definitely less. I know traveling in the last two years, being in other cities and places, there's just like a, a heightened fear or a heightened anxiety mm -hmm. uh, when you walk in places and you're just chill and laid back and like, why don't you have a mask on? Or they say it in a lot, you know, worse tone than that. Right. Um, but for the most part uh, here, I, I would say people just don't maybe watch a ton of news or they're shutting it off and they're just right. not getting that fear porn like you're saying. And there's not like hundreds of people just dropping dead in the streets in Springfield, oh, Missouri. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which thankfully, yeah. I mean, I've had, I've had it twice. I mean, I probably should since I don't have, you know, I don't wear a mask anymore. My wife, we're on the same page, thankfully, but um, I'm pretty sure I've had it twice. To be honest, I've never been tested. Right. So um, I just, you know, had a couple of colds and that felt a little, they hit a little harder. And um, so who knows, but um, I know almost everyone I know has had it, but yeah. again, there aren't just bodies piling in the street. So. Cool. I'm glad to hear that. And, and I wish yeah. more people would focus on the positive. Like, thank God this doesn't negatively affect children. And thank God if yeah. you're generally healthy, you can get over it. But nobody wants to focus yeah. on the positive because the, the entire media is about fear, fear porn, including, yeah. um, I was excited to talk to you, including like everybody that I talked to on the street who has some, you know, uh, two cent opinion is like, oh man, I'd hate to be in commercial real estate right now. Everybody's yeah. everybody's working from home. Nobody's going to renew their lease. Oh my goodness, you know, commercial real estate's going to crash, 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 crash. Y you work in that industry. What's the what's the real answer when it comes to commercial yeah. real estate? Like, what's going on in that ecosystem? Yeah, the real answer is no one knows. I mean, I've I've read both sides of it, and I understand. I've got family lives in Dallas, and and you know, he's in construction. He's like, hey, Justin. It's going to be bad in office. He's like, we're figuring out we can work from home. I don't know what's going to happen, commercial real estate. Um, but then I've read the other side too, where it's almost like we're going to need more space now because people want more, you know, instead of being in a 140 square foot cubicle or smaller, well, now people want to be in a five to 600 square foot. So technically that office space, you're going to need more. So even though there's maybe less people, you're going to have more space to rent and more is going to get leased up. So I don't know. Um, I've seen both sides. I understand both sides. I would say just, you just hedge against your bet and see what happens. Interesting. And, and you've yeah. got an interesting story where you and your brother kind of got some uh, mentorship. You were working under kind of a, a, a national commercial brokerage uh, real estate firm. And then you decided to branch out on your own and start your own thing. Can, can you walk us through a little bit of the journey? Because I've heard some crazy stuff. Like if you're a commercial real estate agent, you're going to have to prove to the brokerage that you can survive for a year with no paycheck. Because like some of these deals, yeah. you know, like if you're renting out a 300,000 square foot warehouse to Amazon or something, yeah. you know, that can take a year to put that deal together. So can you talk, talk to us a little bit about like starting your journey in commercial real estate? Was there some low lying fruit to make money or do you go for like the home runs right away? Like what does the life of a commercial realtor look like? Yeah. And honestly, uh, I had that mindset going into it. And the mindset was, I'm not going to make money for a year. Um, so thankfully we had built up other royalties before we did. I jumped into commercial real estate. We actually ran a graphic design firm. 
Um, so we had done stock photography and we had like thousands upon thousands of, of products online that were selling and we were, you know, getting income and royalties, consistent income from that. So what it allowed us to do is like, okay, we could take two years, not make any money from commercial real estate, really focus on it and then go from there. Nice. Um, so I'd say, and I told my brother that same thing. He was a CPA, um, an accountant, actually he audited, traveled the country. And I said, Hey, just, just quit. I know you're getting burned out. Come with me. Don't expect to make any money for a while and then you'll be fine. So kind of that mindset helps a lot because then you can focus on bigger deals and you're not chasing, you know, these tiny things here and there. Any times like, hey, I'll give you money. You could say no to bad opportunities. Yes to good opportunities. And, and what is in your mind, you know, knowing that this will all be kind of size adjusted and price adjusted for different markets. But what is like, you know, what what is a good opportunity in the commercial space and what's kind of like, oh, I got to do this scrub work because I got to pay my bills. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, leases aren't, aren't the most fun in commercial real estate, uh, to be honest, like they don't pay a ton. Um, but leases get your foot in the door. I mean, I think a couple of my biggest deals were from meeting someone through a lease that the lease didn't work out, but then, you know, became friends or clients. And then we wound up closing a deal, you know, two years later on, uh, on a purchase. So I think leases are probably my least favorite to do, but at the same time, um, I think there it's, it's almost like mining for, you know, potential deals in the future. So you just got to have that like forward thinking, future thinking mindset with leases because otherwise, yeah, they can be a pain. And on the lease side, are you normally representing the the person that's looking to sign the lease and, and secure the space? Or are you working for the owner of the building or is it both? Like how, how does that work? Yeah, it's been both. Um, but we've been mainly on like the tenant side mm -hmm. and then even the buyer side of real estate. We we haven't done a ton of listings per se, but we've helped a ton of buyers. So I would say we lean more towards buyers and tenants. Got it. Got it. And, yeah. and what are the things that you're looking out for on behalf of the tenant? And then how do you get paid? So so let's say, you know, I, I've got an office down in Los Angeles, California. I'm spending some more time in Nevada. And I'm like, ah, working from home is getting a little challenging. I got to call yeah. my buddy Justin to like go find me some office space for the mortgage, for the coaching, for whatever. Like what yeah. what are the things you're looking for? How am I paying you? Like what value mm -hmm. are you adding? Like how does that yeah. how does our relationship work? Yeah. So the buyer doesn't pay anything. Uh, I would say 99% of the time, our commission comes from the seller side. Got it. Um, so buyers just, we're basically helping them through to find a space and then rethrow the contract. So we're looking for things like personal guarantees, um, how long the lease is, uh, what the rate is, hopefully it's market rate. We're going over all that and just making sure that they're not getting in, you know, in a five-year contract when their business plan is for two years. Um, so kind of helping them through that. A lot of people have never even read a lease or they're, you know, it, it, it's scary if you've never done it before, for sure. It's like anything. Um, so more there for maybe counseling on right. the way through helping them show properties if we need to, but, but yeah, overall, that's kind of what we do. You know, it's interesting cause you're, you're, you're kind of pointing to something that makes me believe that, you know, the mortgage loan officer, the professional realtor is going to be around longer than tech would like us to be around. Cause at yeah, the end, at yeah. the end of the day, you know, Amazon mortgage can come out tomorrow and make it a very seamless process for people to sign documents and, and review the lease and, and click the buttons. But if I don't know what I'm looking at and I'm signing yeah. something for three years or five years or on a mortgage 30 years, like I need a little bit of that human or most people need a little bit of that yeah. human touch to like explain to them what they're getting into. Right. And so, For sure. you know, how much of your jobs, how much of your job is like actual logistics, understanding contracts and real estate and how much of it is like being the psychologist to your client? Yeah. Um, honestly, it's probably 50, 50. Obviously we have to understand what we're doing. Um, and there are times where a client asks something. I'm like, I don't know. I've never seen that. I'll ask. 
Um, so I think that's important too, but I'd say, yeah, probably 50, 50, um, as long as we understand the contracts, we're essentially, yeah, like mentors, just helping them through the process. Cool. Um, and there's this term that gets thrown around a lot in GoBundance or with commercial guys. And I need an education here. Cause I kind of just nod my head and pretend like I know what I'm talking about, but I have no clue what I'm talking about. What is a triple net lease? Yeah. So triple net lease is something where the tenant pays for insurance, taxes, everything. Um, so whatever pertains to the building. And then I think it's anything, there's a certain dollar amount that you'll agree to, but essentially it's great uh, on both sides because the tenant knows exactly what they're paying for like year one to year two. And then um, the owner gets consistent income. So they don't have to worry about the roof or sometimes it depends on the contract. They'll, they'll worry about the roof and the outside. The tenant is responsible for everything inside. So they're doing tenant improvements, all that. Um, but again, the seller or the owner of the building just gets consistent. And honestly, some of these like general uh, or not general uh, dollar. Well, why can't I think of the dollar store? Dollar Tree. Dollar Tree, yeah. 99 cents. Dollar store. General. Dollar oh, there's general, too many dollar stores. Dollar General. Like a, a Dollar General will have a 20-year lease, 20-year triple net lease. And honestly, from the, from the builder side too, it's amazing because if you're Dollar General, you're building a building for two to 300,000, you're selling for 1.7 million. Um, so that just allows you to scale quicker and all that. And essentially gives you, you know, that your cash flow from, from the building or dollar general, all the sales, it's going to pay for your lease, no problem. So they're putting these dollar generals in Hartville, a town of 400 people. And they're selling it for $1.2 million. If that dollar general ever leaves, you're in trouble. Um, but for the most part, it's pretty, pretty secure. So wait, let me, let me, let me think. Yeah. This. So there's a, there's a construction company and they say, Hey, we don't want to run a business, but we know if we build this 30,000 square foot, you know, building to the specifics of dollar general and what they're looking for, we'll build mm -hmm. it for, for $200,000. And then we'll sign a triple net lease with dollar general where they pay us. I'm just making up numbers, $20,000 a month for the space. They pay the taxes, they pay the insurance, they pay the maintenance. And I know over 20 years, I'm going to make, a couple million bucks on the lease. And mm -hmm. all I've got to do is build it to like, to be owned by Dollar General. Am I, am I thinking exactly. about this correctly? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy from both sides. And, and again, the, the biggest risk is them leaving. And that's why you yeah. want really high-end tenants. Like Starbucks does triple net leases. Most restaurants like Taco Bell, Burger King, they're all triple net leases. So you just want a tenant that you know is not going to fold and just leave. Because obviously if you're hanging on to a nut of $2 million and your tenant leaves after five years, you've got a lot to pay and you've got either got to go find another tenant or you've got to cough up, you know, start coughing up money. So why, why doesn't dollar general or Starbucks or whatever, why don't they just get into the real estate game? And like, if you know you're signing a 20 year lease, why don't you just part with the extra cash up front to build the building or own the building yourself? Like I, I, yeah. I, I get, I get kind of the symbiotic relationship from the landlord side. Like, Hey, I can build this site for this company and they can come in and lease it. But why wouldn't the, why wouldn't the Starbucks or the dollar general just cut them off of the knees and be like, yeah, well, we'll just spend the extra 300 grand and own the land up front and build it ourselves. Like I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. And it's a great question from what I understand, what I've kind of seen. Um, I think they're just good at retail. Starbucks is good at selling coffee and that's what they do best. And they don't want to have to mess with the building. Um, so I think they just focus on that. And I know GoBundance teaches that as well. Um, you know, like outsource and, and find people who can help you. That's my assumption yeah. is that their Starbucks is great at that. McDonald's actually owns land. They do it a little differently. Um, but Burger King, um, same thing. They're good at doing burgers. So just yeah. stick to burgers, take your cash and then just open another one.
Well, I would argue that Burger King is not good at doing burgers, but that's probably <laughs> a different conversation. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because like, uh, didn't uh, didn't the McDonald's Corporation famously get uber wealthy because they own all the land and the buildings? So it's like they're oh, making yeah, burgers, genius. they're making money, but they also like one of the biggest real estate holders in America. Yeah, and they're they're land leases, so it's a genius business model. I mean, they own the land. If the owner doesn't tell you like or doesn't do the updates that McDonald's wants him to do, then they just tear it down. So they have total <laughs> control, total control. It's kind of crazy, but it's it's brilliant. And I mean, they've been successful for it. That's insane. That's insane, yeah. man. All right, cool. Well, thank you for educating me on a triple net lease because I've heard that come up a lot. I just kind of shake my head like I know what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm talking yeah. about. Well, um, I don't know if I explained it well. Maybe I just blabbered, but. Hopefully that helped a little bit. It was good enough. It was good enough. It'll give me some talking points so I don't sound like a moron. So so what is like, you know, you mentioned you were set up to not necessarily make money for a year. Uh, What's like a big commercial deal? You know, I mentioned the Amazon warehouse because Amazon's just kind of in the the political, social, kind of media zeitgeist right now. Like what's a big deal for you to work on and, and why might it take a year for something to come together before you get paid on it? Yeah. And it's local. So obviously I'm, I'm in the Midwest. So our commercial deals here are a lot less than LA and, you know, the East coast. So, um, I would say a big one here is going to be anything, um, between one and 5 million. Um, that's like probably the most normal transactions. And then, you know, we've got a $30 million chase building here in town. Um, we've got some buildings I would say, uh, here, if you're doing a 20 to $40 million building, that's, that's a pretty, pretty big deal. Um, most of the, most of the deals happen between the one and $5 million range. And what does that mean? If you're like doing a $20 million building, like you're yeah. responsible for leasing it out or selling it or buying it or what? It depends. Yeah. They could be, I know we've, uh, sold some buildings where, you know, they brought tenants in and they had a triple net lease on the whole building. So then they're just selling the building at that, whatever that triple net lease is, but it depends on what it is. Um, again, we can represent a buyer and it's just for an office. Uh, I know, you know, someone needs just more warehouse space or something like that. It, it, it just depends. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I'm interested because I work on obviously the residential real estate of thing, real estate side of things. And I'm constantly counseling clients on, well, yeah, you know, the house is listed at eight ninety nine, but if you really love it, you can go to nine fifty and here's how it might work. And it's very emotional yeah. and it's the place the it's the place yeah. the person's gonna live. But I imagine if you're this thirty million dollar chase building, everything's rented out, you have a triple net lease, you know what the long term like cost and and income is of the building, because like Water and power is going to be water and power. This person mm-hmm. signed their lease. You know, you're getting X amount of dollars per square foot. Is there a motion in it? Or is it just like company A looks at company B, they do the math and they're like, yeah, we want to own this on our portfolio, sign the paperwork. Like, yeah. like what, what, what is it like in comparison to buying residential real estate? There can be emotion, but honestly, that's why I was drawn to it is because it's pretty emotionless. And I think uh, my wife would tell you too. I'm pretty emotionless for the most part. <laughs> like, um, I can work. I could work. She's like my that. husband's. My husband's an ice king. Like it just his yeah. heart is like it's just. A, my empathy meter is a little low, so I need to like fill that up a little bit. But yeah, here you go. <laughs> so, exactly. Winter, winter is coming. So exactly. Yeah. No, I I need that. But um, but I would say for the most part, it's it's emotionless, and, and honestly, it's just about numbers. Especially a buyer, if it's an investor, like, hey, I want this property. Okay, show me the numbers. What does this look like in year one? Possibly year two, year five. Um, and they're not falling in love with it. And honestly, that's what I was kind of taught and mentored at. Like, don't fall in love with properties, right. um, you know, fall in love with an opportunity, but if something comes up and it, it's not the right fit, then walk away from it. 
so so much easier said than done, right? Because we all get emotional. Sure. We all get about emotional about money on some level. So yeah. don't don't. What did you say? Don't fall in love with the property. Fall in love with the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Explain that a little bit more. Yeah, I think the property. I mean, with residential real estate, uh, you know, uh, if there's men or women involved. Um, they can walk into a place, Hey, this is what I dreamed of. This is what I owned. And then it gets emotional. And then it's like, okay, well the offers at 600,000, let's give 800,000 because we don't care. We're going to pay whatever it takes because we love it. Yeah. Um, I think with commercial real estate and investing, you know, you can love a property, you can love a location, but if something comes up and you know, the pipes are bad or it's just, it doesn't feel right. Even if it's just a gut feeling, you, there's nothing that says you have to keep it or move forward with it. I think there's, there's, I've been taught there's always opportunity. It's just a matter of saying yes or no. So if you say no to an opportunity, there's going to be another one. Um, it's, it's maybe it's the go abundance or abundance mindset. Um, I just don't ever want to get stuck in a deal just, just because I feel like it's right. Yeah. Or like you have to make a deal happen or something. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And all right. So, so if we know there's lack of emotion, if we know it's kind of just numbers and this is how it is, why then can it take months or years to bring together a commercial uh, uh, transaction? Like you were mentioning that $30 million chase building. It's like, okay, I get it. It's a lot of money, but it's like, here's the numbers. Here's no emotion. You have a willing buyer and seller. There's full disclosure on the table. Like why doesn't that close in seven days? Yeah. And that's different. So a chase building would actually probably, it could close in 30 to 60 days, but you're looking at foundations. You're looking at, you know, going through a checklist of items, but the reverse side is like land, like commercial land could take honestly 12 months to close. So you're looking through zoning, you're making sure, you know, sewage is in place, utilities, water, all that. And then you're also having to go through zoning periods and like rezone land. So that's where those deals can take longer with, you know, residential, you can close something quick or cash or who knows. But um, I would say land probably takes the longest out of any commercial asset to close. Got it. Got it. And yeah. obviously if I'm going to go rent a, a small building or an office space, that's just like, I'm giving a personal guarantee or my, my, you know, my parent company is signing on it and there's a, there's a monthly expenditure of costs and they're collecting their rent. Um, yeah. if, if somebody's buying a $30 million building and, and it's probably not a somebody, it's probably one company yeah. buying it from another company. What, what do like financing terms look like? Like, are you, are you getting a loan with 20% down? Are you getting a 30 year fix? Like what are some of the, the financing terms if you're looking to like buy yeah. a commercial building? Honestly, I don't know what Chase's financial terms look like. I know when you get more money and I know I've seen, you know, uh, more wealthy people here in this area that they kind of go to the bank and they tell them what they want and the bank gives them money. So I don't know what it looks like. I've seen people get as low as, you know, like 0.5% interest or no interest on, on big loans. That's just because the bank wants to, you know, take their hundred million and then loan it out. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a game, especially above, you know, 10, 15 million. Uh, there's a lot of power in, money, unfortunately. And, you know, you can, they can, those people can go to banks and kind of create their own terms. Yeah. I remember the wealthiest client I ever did a pre-approval for. He was just a phenomenal guy. And I, I don't want to say too much about him because that would be uh, 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 violating some type of non-disclosure, but phenomenal guy. He was buying like his fourth or fifth house in Los Angeles. He had one in New York, one in Switzerland, wow. whatever. And he got hooked up with me by the realtor and he was going to buy, I don't know, $3 million property with like 50% down. He's like, you know, I could buy it cash, but I want to give my son the responsibility of paying a mortgage and, and understanding what it's like for money to come out of his pocket. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dude. I can't even get a Subway sandwich out of my dad. And this guy's getting like a million five down. 
So, yeah. so anyway, we did the pre-approval. We got him to the property, and then he called me. He's like, hey, Scott, I, I really hate to do this, man. I feel like a jerk, but I was talking to my uh, financial advisor over at HSBC, and he's like, hey, man, you have so much money on deposit with us. We'll do your 30-year fixed mortgage at one and a quarter percent. Like, can you mm -hmm. match that, Scott? Because I'd rather work with you. <laughs> and at the time, rates are like three and a half, and I'm like, hey, yeah. Mr. So-and-so, this is rich people problems, man. You've got yep. so much money on deposit with HSBC. They just want to retain that relationship and the yeah. last thing they want is your loan to go to chase and then chase is soliciting you every month in your mortgage statement to bring your finances over here bring your business banking account over here i'm like so yes you should immediately go with hsbc and he's the yeah. only client that has ever dumped me and then sent me something he sent me like a 500 dollars <laughs> gift certificate to this uh, local steakhouse and i thought it was oh, super man. super cool of him so uh yeah. i would i would have rather had the loan but uh but, yeah yeah but such a cool no, guy it's definitely a different playing environment um, for sure. And yeah, like I said, they kind of create their own roles and do what they want. Cool. So, so talk yeah. to me about some big business failures because obviously you've had some if you wrote yeah. a book called Professional Failure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's funny. I, I told my mom the, the title that I had uh, like come to, I don't know, agree on. And um, she, kinda, she was like, but, but Justin, you're not a failure. And I was like, mom, I know that's the point. Like that's, that's the fun of it, you know? And uh, so I think that professional failure, it grabs something. But as far as my own uh, business failures, yeah, we've had, um, we, we, we've done two apps. We spent, I don't know, probably $20,000 between two apps and realized very quickly that, uh, you know, you can't create an app and then just throw it out there and just expect it um, to do well. So we learned quickly through that, lost some money through that, lost some money through the stock market. Um, you know, I think it's just trying to make money too fast is what I've learned. And it's just a slow and steady, steady thing. And uh, I'm reading um, Morgan Housel's book, um, Psychology of Money right now. And he kind of talks about the same thing. He's like, usually the people that get in a hurry uh, making money are the ones that get in trouble. Even if, even if they make it to hundred million, well, that hurry mindset never goes away. So they're going right. to eventually swing and miss. Uh, so that's what I'm, I'm trying to do is I know I'm going to swing and miss. I'm just not in a hurry to get there. Yeah. Yeah, that's really great. So what's the what's the premise of the book? Like, what are we going to learn from reading the book or what's the entertainment yeah. value? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is mentors. I think I just, over the last, you know, um, three or four years, I've just realized how many people have poured into me. So I think the big thing of recognizing mentors and understanding that, you know, we're all made from the people around us. It's like, we none of us do this alone. doesn't matter who it is. Um, we just don't do this alone. So that and then learning from the failures of mentors too. So not only your, your own failures, but if you can learn from mentors saying, hey, don't do this. I've done this. I've been there. This, this ends badly. Instead of having to go out and do that ourselves, um, why can't we just take their advice and, and listen and then, you know, excel that much faster? That's awesome. So give us one of the, uh, give us one of the tidbits or, you know, mentorship like uh, lessons that's in the book, uh, Professional Failure. Yeah. Um, one I really liked is my uncle. So my, so I grew up on a dairy farm. Both my grandparents were dairy farmers. My uncle still runs the farm and this happened probably I don't know, three or four months ago. Um, I had a big U-Haul and um, like a dummy, I pulled it in my backyard and I kind of parked it in the backyard over our uh, sewer line. And so it's still soft. We had just built the house and I got it stuck. So long story short, my uncle's like a joker. He's, he's great, but he's always on the farm. I called him like, Hey, I need some help. Figured he's going to come rib me and all this. Um, and then he pulls the truck out, no problem. Him and his, his son, my cousin, uh, he gets to the top and I'm, you know, walking over and I'm just waiting for him to berate me. And he, <laughs> and he goes, and I mean, I'm 30, I'm 35, uh, at this point. And he's just like, what did you learn? And I was like, 
what do you mean? What did I learn? I, I learned I'm an idiot. And he's like, no, no, no. He goes, don't ever drive over a sewer line. He goes, they're always soft. So anytime you see a sewer line or uh, he said, don't drive over it. So just little things like that, like that could have been a moment where he's like, you're an idiot. Like, right. you know, don't call me again. But instead he stopped. He was doing, hey, he stopped. He brought his tractor over. He helped me. And then he literally taught me a lesson. I think that's what I want to open up people's eyes to is all the little lessons that we missed during the day that maybe we're too proud or, you know, we're not, we're not humble enough to, to take the advice from someone who maybe we view uh, in the back of our mind as below us, or maybe they don't know as much as us. Uh, I just think there's so much to learn from, from everyone. It, it doesn't matter who, it honestly doesn't matter if it's a bum on the street, they've got life experience and they have wisdom that you probably don't have. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, um, I try to keep an open mind and I've got an ego just like everybody else. And I make mistakes yeah. just like everybody else. And one of my coaching clients, one of my very first coaching clients in the mortgage industry from like five or six years ago has now outpaced me. Um, you know, he took what he could from our coaching and like really hit the trajectory of his life hard. And then as he grew, he was like, cool, now I got to be in Tony Robbins platinum partners and pay my hundred grand to get in that mm -hmm. circle of friends. And now I got to do this. And so, uh, just this last Monday, I went down and did a site visit at his office and, uh, and I'm like, Hey man, like you're clearly doing some things now better than I am. And maybe I can add some value to your workflow. And it was interesting because we're in different seasons of our lives as far as age and how much we want to work. But it's like, I just took away so much from the stuff he's implementing on a technology side. He asked me for a bunch of feedback on like how he's running his team and what he's doing and whatnot. And now this new relationship has bought blossomed instead of like mentor mentee or a little bit of a weirdness because he's now surpassed his mentor. Now it's like, yeah. Hey, now we see a lane where we can invest together and work together. And I actually yeah. just wired the money this morning because we're going to do a project together. And, yeah. you know, it would have been very easy for me to have a chip on my shoulder or let my ego take over or let my feelings be, you know, uh, hurt. And instead it's like, no, no, as long as you keep your eyes open for like new lessons and new mentors, like he's now becoming my mentor in this area and I'm going to become his mentor in this area. And it's like exactly. that opportunity is always there if you keep your eyes open and you check your ego at the door. So I think that's, exactly. a, that's a phenomenal lesson, man. Yeah. And that's what I think. I think mentors, honestly, a good, a great mentor uh, creates more mentors and he creates someone who honestly better than he is it, in my mind. I think that if you can have someone that can coach someone and then they can yeah become wiser or richer, whatever it is, the, the goal is then the previous mentor, the apprentice becomes the mentor. That to me is success. Yeah. Amazing, man. So, so you've got, um, you've got some, uh, residential properties that you own and, and something we were talking about before we started the show is you've kind of carved out this interesting niche where you're not like, Hey, I want Airbnb in these super flashy, you know, resort vacation areas. We're kind of doing medium term rentals, you know, a month to two months. I think you mentioned traveling nurses and things of that nature. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the short term rental game and then how you yeah. found your niche of like this, this medium term rental, you know, not a one year lease at the lowest yeah. possible price, but also not trying to get $400 a night in, you know, Palm Springs or $4,000 a night at Palm Springs during Coachella. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we kind of stumbled upon Airbnb, to be honest, we, we were in our uh, design studio and we were leasing a space. The owner came to us and said, Hey, do you want to buy the building? I'm getting ready to sell it. Uh, long story short, we knew the guy next door wanted it because he owned both buildings on both sides of us. Uh, so we just said, yes, we'll figure it out. Let's, let's buy it. Otherwise we're going to get kicked out. So we bought it. Uh, there's three apartments above the space. We wound up, all three of them were leased when we had it. So as soon as we bought it, our mortgage was covered, taxes, everything. So it was, it was perfect awesome. for us. 
Long story short, one of our tenants uh, wound up um, needing to be evicted. So we evicted them and then we stumbled upon Airbnb from someone else on the street. So we decided to give it a shot. And I think month one, um, we, we had been getting like $650 rent and month one, we did like $1,400 um, just in Airbnb rentals. And we thought, hey, we may, we may be on to something. And I think our next month, we got like a $5,000 booking from a traveling nurse. And we kind of just picked our brain and, and asked and started asking around. And she just said there weren't options because you have to sign a six-month lease or longer here in town. And they're only in town for like 13 weeks. So they just need something furnished. They can get in, get out. Um, so as we, we kind of kept that in the back of our minds, we ran, we bought another or switched another apartment into an Airbnb and then uh, again, did nightly rentals. And then we started uh, trying to figure out the, the monthly rental. So, so all that to say, now we've come to speed. I think we've got three nightly rentals still and the rest are all pretty much monthly. Um, it's just, it's less maintenance. It's less cleaning and hassle little bit more freedom for us. Um, and it, it's a win for the nurses and traveling business people as well. Yeah. And you're not getting the party animals that are just coming through town for no. one night, two nights, a, you know, a bachelor party, a friend's exactly. 25th birthday or whatever, you know, this is, a, yeah. I'm guessing, I'm guessing the month long tenants are a little bit more of a professional crowd. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we don't want the parties and we have a strict no party policy. We've had one kid traveling kid come through. We learned our lesson he partied and just trashed a place. Um, so we learned quickly. We don't want that. I mean, we want professionals. We want people that are going to take care of it. Um, my wife's the secret in all this. I mean, she designs everything and, uh, furnishes them. So she puts a lot of time and, and energy into it. And so we just want people that respect that. Yeah. Yeah. And how long have you been in this game? Like how long ago did you stumble across your first rental and where are you at at now? Yeah, I think it was probably five, five or six years ago. Uh, when we bought the building, I don't know exactly, but about that that time, and then actually um, our our royalties and some of our design business, it was going so well, we had profits. So we started buying real estate with the profits and then we kind of fell in love with real estate. And now we've, we've pretty much made a full shift into real estate and just do, you know, little tiny projects on the side for ourselves if we want to. Nice. And, and what yeah. is that, what, what has that created for, you know, like going into real estate, the Airbnb, the profitability, like what, what has that created as far as either freedom or income or wealth? Yeah. Like, what does that look like? Yeah, no, it's created a, a, an ultimate freedom. Honestly. Um, it allows us to go, we've talked about it for years. We've got friends in Dallas that do this, but they take a sabbatical every year. So we talked about it for a long time. Let's do it. Let's do it. But when you're, you know, when you're forced to take your time to make money, it's tough to take a month off, even though you may have stuff in the bank, it's just tough to, to realize that and see, okay, I'm not making money today, but with real estate, it does, it's more passive. Um, and we've kind of made it more passive where we're actually going to take our first sabbatical this year, um, and just take a month off from work and kind of reset and hopefully do that going, going forward. Where's the sabbatical at? Is this going to be a staycation or are you guys going to like Costa Rica oh. or something? It's going to be a mix. We won't do Costa Rica. I think we're going to go to Charleston at some point. Um, we've talked about going there for a while and then, you know, probably somewhere in Florida. We haven't decided yet, but it'll probably be two weeks here, two weeks there. I, I love Charleston. My wife and I went there for like a little mini honeymoon after we got married. And um, it's like the it's like the family friendly New Orleans, like same. Really? Yeah, it's so great. I mean, there's just great eating and drinking on every corner. It's the same festive attitude without 2000 people pissing in the street and throwing yeah. up on you. So it's like <laughs> yeah. Char Charleston's one of my favorite cities. I really, really love it down there. Good. That's good to hear. We're excited. We've we've heard uh, good things about it. So we've never been there, but we've never been to New Orleans either. So 
uh, we'll just get hooked on Charleston and just skip New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. New Orleans, yeah. unless you really like smoking cigars in bars, which I do, uh, yeah. New Orleans could be like a hard pass. I, I went there for Jazz yeah. Fest. Uh, I'm actually really thankful. We went to Jazz Fest the year before this COVID craziness kicked off, and so we got to really enjoy that. It was cool, like good music, lots of oysters. You can smoke cigars anywhere. It was pretty awesome. But then yeah. you kind of walk around the streets at night, and you're like, oh, this is pretty seedy and pretty gross. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, Char I, I'm, I prefer Charleston. Yeah, I'm not a cigar or oysters or oysters guy, so uh, I uh, it'll be probably a big hard pass for me. Perfect. Charleston has plenty yeah. of uh, plenty good. of good food, and I don't think they have any dairy cows, but they got they got good stuff out there. Um, hey, a couple questions to to close yeah. up here. Like, um, obviously, you know, like we talked about rural Missouri, it's been a little bit business as normal the last couple of years. But anything you're looking forward to getting back to this kind of 2022, or anything on the horizon for you professionally or personally that you're really excited mm -hmm. about, other than the the months sabbatical which sounds awesome yeah um so obviously the book's gonna be fun uh we've thrown around the idea of starting a podcast um to coincide with the book launch so i think we're gonna do that um and then we're opening one more airbnb uh it's a geometric dome oh, so nice. i think it's a pretty pretty cool place um so we're gonna do that once we do that we actually had a conversation this morning uh i had a thought last night as i'm reading through the psychology of money kind of talks about enough and all this and I thought, you know, maybe we shouldn't buy any more properties this year and just take a year to just reorganize, recoup and, you know, part of the sabbatical uh, mindset. So I thought about that. And then this morning, my wife and I went to coffee and she said, hey, I was thinking maybe we shouldn't buy another property this year. And I said, done. Like I had the same thought. So we're on the same page. So I said, unless, unless there's a deal that is just like a million dollar deal and we can get it for a hundred thousand dollars. Right. We will think about that. But otherwise, I think we're just going to hopefully kind of recoup and, and get better systems in place and then yeah, see where the book and podcast take us and, and travel some. Yeah, it's funny. I know in the mortgage business, just because that's what I'm most familiar with, we're constantly ebbing and flowing in these seasons of like, oh, lead acquisition, grind, 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 new mm -hmm. realtor relationships, grow the database. And then you get to a point where it's like, all right, well, I don't need to grind for this next six months on new client acquisition. I really just need to figure out how to retain who I have and convert yeah. what I already have and nurture my database. And there's probably a ton of business on the table that I left on the table because I was grinding so hard to just keep re reinventing the wheel, you know, every yeah. day, every month. So yeah, I'm a big yeah. fan of those like seasons of life of like grind, acquire, and then kind of like recoup, um, yeah. which I'm a big fan of. Yeah. And I kind of talk about it in the book too. It's like success has, you know, like peaks and plateaus. It's like, you cannot constantly go up, up, up. Um, otherwise you're going to wear yourself out. So I think plateaus are a gift and plateaus are something we should take advantage of. It doesn't mean we're not growing. It doesn't mean that we're not pushing like we should, but I think plateaus are part of the journey. Um, so this may be a plateau year where we just reorganize, uh, catch our breath and then go from there. Nice man. Uh, yeah. second to last question. Uh, what's the question I forgot to ask? And this can be personally, professionally, politically, like just interesting, oh, interesting tidbit about Justin. You know, he's an undefeated MMA fighter or something. I don't know. Um, yeah. What's the what's the question I forgot to ask? Oh, man, that's tough. Uh, maybe what do I do as a hobby? Did you ask that? I did not, man. What, what do you what do you do in your free time out there on the dairy farm? Yeah. Yeah. So we still got the cows. That's still fun. Um, yeah. I won't say anything more about that, but we still got that. Um, we play. I just love playing sports, so I don't care what it is. Um, I play tennis with some friends. I started hockey, which I almost broke my ankle. Uh, I've never <laughs> skated before. So I'm learning how to skate on hockey, but it's little things like that, that I just like experiencing new things. And then, uh, my wife and I play pickleball. We love pickleball. 
so we played in a tournament know, over the summer and we were actually scheduled for one uh, this, this coming weekend, but it got postponed. Uh, but anything active, I just, I love, it's funny cause I don't love watching sports. Like it's fun and it's a social thing for me, but I love playing sports. Yeah. Um, so anytime, if it involves a ball, uh, I'm probably in. So, um, excuse my ignorance. What is pickleball? Have you not heard of pickleball yet? I've heard of it, okay. but I don't, I have no clue what it is. So, uh, basically it's like a mix between tennis and ping pong. Okay. Uh, it's on a smaller court. But you play with these wiffle balls almost, and okay. then you have these paddles that are, I don't know, um, twice, three times the size. Well, probably four times the size of a ping pong paddle. Got it. Um, so you just, it's, it's kind of a slow paced game, to be honest. Um, they, you dink the ball over the net a lot. So what it allows is, you know, uh, someone who's like fresh out of college or 25, super athletic, they can literally get beat by a 70 year old because it's, it's really just about touch and feel. Um, you can slam it. But I think it allows men and women to play together. It allows my wife and I play together. Um, and it's just, it's just fun. I'm, I'm picturing like old person badminton. Yeah, that's probably a good vision. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm just the net blower. I'm going to yeah. go, go have to watch a YouTube video on pickleball. This sounds, uh, this yeah, sounds yeah. awesome. Go down the rabbit hole of pickleball. Perfect. Yeah. And maybe something I can find to do with my wife, because if, if I have one frustration about my marriage, and my wife and I have talked about this openly, so I don't think she would mind me sharing it on a podcast, we can't find that physical thing that we can do together. Like, yeah. she, she loves the aerobic workouts and the boot camp and the like raw raw flip tires and shit over with a trainer and i'm like this is miserable like this is i yeah. hate this and there's yeah. a zero percent chance i'm gonna get her to go to jujitsu or boxing because she's like dude you want somebody sweaty laying on top of me she's like that's the most <laughs> disgusting thing ever and so we haven't quite found that like physical activity we can do together yeah. so maybe we'll we'll try definitely right yeah it was it was similar for us too i did a ton of act, active stuff um but we really didn't find anything that we did together, like that we loved Intel pickleball. So I'd at least give it a shot. It is something I think you could probably do together and it's, it's physical. And uh, I mean, you could play for three, four hours at a time. Nice man. And then yeah. uh, last question. Cause I feel like you can get to really know somebody on a deep level on this one. Uh, favorite movie and why? Oh man. Favorite movie. And you, and you um, might have a, you might have a one, a one B one C we can go over all of them. Yeah. Cause I'm a movie junkie. I'll just, but. I'll just say Dumb and Dumber. I, I still <laughs> love Dumb and Dumber. Um, I mean, there's been some great movies, but Dumb and Dumber to me is just, it's it reminds me of like, you know, childhood or high school or I forget what even grade I was when I saw it. But it just, it almost reminds me to be lighthearted. Like, like it's just a fun movie to watch. And there, honestly, I do not rewatch movies. Once I watch them, I just don't want to watch it again. But Dumb and Dumber, I can rewatch just because it puts me in a place where uh, I'm laughing. Um, it's just... I don't know. It's a lighthearted movie. I think I wish they would make more movies again uh, like that. I think any comedy now is just so crude and over the top. I get yeah. done watching. I'm like, oh, I got to take a shower. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I just wish they'd make more like that, but that'd be, that'd be my pick. So you're saying there's a chance. Yep. That, that's, that's one of the best lines. And I, I kind of have a thing for redheads. Um, so I think it, is it Holly yeah. Hunter is the, is the woman in that movie? Um, oh man, I should know. Who, I who's the redhead know, but... in dumb and dumber, Chris, you're gonna have to look this up. Um, yeah. Cause she was, she was on a TV show. I think she was on picket fences and something else. Like okay. to me, she was just like the hottest girl in Hollywood for a long time because she's, yep. she's, she's soft on the eyes and she has red hair. And she was like, she was like the, the dry comedy in, uh, in yeah. dumb and dumber. I was a big friend. You, is, yep. is it Holly Hunter, Chris? 
Lauren Holly. Lauren Holly. Lauren, Lauren Holly. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, no, I for her. good for good reason. She was she was very attractive. She yeah. still is, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Cool, man. Well, hey, we really appreciate you being on the podcast. Again, we're gonna release this end of March, right before your book comes out. So if yeah. anybody is looking to learn more uh, from Justin or learn more about professional failure, how to get those lessons and those mentors, order the book. It comes out April fifth. And uh, man, we just really appreciate you having on. Maybe we can have you on in a couple more months. See how the book launch is going, and see if the podcast gets launched and go from there. Yeah, I'd love that. Appreciate you having me, Scott. Cool, man. Thanks for being on. All right, thanks. Thanks.